0: So if you can allow your sexuality to be what it is, you turn toward it with kindness and compassion, even if it's not what you were taught it is supposed to be, the thing you were taught is the thing that's wrong. Welcome to Two Hot Wives,
1: a podcast where two friends in open marriages explore the exciting world of unconventional sex. Potties. I'm Ams. And I'm Kat. And we're the Two Hot Wives. Tonight, we are discussing a book that literally changed my life. Absolutely. Yeah. Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. If you have not read this book, you definitely need to press pause, go to Amazon, buy the book, and then come back and listen to this because it's amazing. Yeah. And I listened to the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I have to
2: say was awesome because she narrates it herself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she's very excited and she's very passionate and it comes out as she's reading it. So it was really fantastic. I'm in my car. I'm listening to her. It was fantastic. Yeah.
1: Anybody who is a vulva owner (laughs) or who loves and wants to pleasure a vulva owner should read this book. It is about unlocking the mysteries of female sexuality. And I mean that term really broadly. Like, yeah, I was just thinking that too. I think it really taps into feminine energy, and your gender presentation mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to align with that. Although a lot of it is about anatomy. In right. fact, she really starts with right. anatomy. Well, uh, it's sort of the brain body connection, connection,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Context and how you're feeling that day, and and all of those things that are in your head, right? Play the. The biggest role in your sexuality, how your body is responding to whatever stimulus is coming in, yeah. whether you're going to be open to it or no way, not right right now.
1: So we're going to go into some of the key takeaways that we had the first time that we read the book. And of course, I am so excited that we get to share an interview that we had with Emily just a, a couple of months ago. She is in the middle of writing another book. So for her to take the time to speak with us is such an honor. That was really unbelievable. I am such a huge (laughs) fangirl. She's Mm -hmm. amazing. But before we get into that, Kat, what are we drinking tonight?
2: We are drinking the Blood Orange Mule. Mm. I know I had to throw a mule in there. I know ginger beer is my favorite. Right, yeah. So yeah, it's just vodka, uh, Blood Orange juice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um triple sec or any lor- orange liqueur that mm-hmm. you like and uh ginger beer you love it yeah, a little, yeah. S- a little
1: squeeze of lime yeah i like blood orange because it's not quite as sweet right as orange juice and it's pretty it makes for a very pretty very really pretty <laughs> yeah okay and with our cocktails we need some hot tails All right, Ems, it's your hot tail tonight. So my hot tail is more sort of funny and ridiculous than it is hot, hot, hot. But um, do you remember in the cannabis and sex Mm -hmm. episode, one of our listeners, our friends, Red and Ready, had made a suggestion on Twitter for a THC infused lube? Yes. Yes. I remember that. Called Quim. And... uh, to quote Ms. Red and Reddy, it got her pussy so high. <laughs> I was like, I must try this thing. Is it
2: CBD or?
1: THC. THC.
2: Yes, okay. it is
1: not CBD, which you can go to Whole Foods and pick up something right. that has CBD in it, but uh, no, this is THC infused, and it is only available in California. Of course. Mm-hmm. But- They have all the good stuff. They Well, they're they're kind of, yeah, like- In the vanguard of cannabis-related products. Yes. (laughs) It's like the Silicon Valley of of cannabis. Uh, So I wanted to get this product before our episode two, but I just couldn't line it up because I wasn't going to California. However, I did have an opportunity to go to California. We went to Lake Tahoe a while back, and I thought, oh, Maybe I can pick up this um product. Mm-hmm. And I did a little research on different dispensaries and was trying to find one that had it, but Lake Tahoe's tiny. It's mm-hmm. like little teeny tiny. And none of the dispensaries in the area had quite not a big de- demand. Not a big demand for this. I don't know. I have to imagine that there's a heck of a lot of vulvas Hello? in Lake Tahoe, just like any other place. <laughs> but it it was hard to find. Not mm-hmm. every dispensary had it. And uh, I had talked to my sister who knows about the podcast, knows about everything about taking, like if I sent a delivery to her house, could she bring it Um, with her when she came up to visit me in Lake Tahoe. And then we kind of got into a little fight. And I didn't want to be like, ooh, time out on the fight. Do you mind if I still send (laughs) this very adult product to your house with your little kids? I know. Well, yeah. We're in such a good place. But we were in the middle of a bit of a fight at the time. So got to Lake Tahoe and I kind of went, all right. I just – this is not going to be possible to do. Mm -hmm. But Mr. Amps (laughs) – for whom no challenge is too great. That's right. He will come up with a solution. He no was... matter whether you want to do it or not. That's right. That's right. He made a suggestion that I ask my dad to take possession of...
2: That's not weird.
1: No, not no, weird at no, all. No, no hey. that's not weird. Hey, dad, do you mind if I have uh, three bottles of THC-infused Lube? lubricant sent <laughs> to your house? I was like, I'm not going to do that. And so Mr. Amps literally sends a message to my dad.
2: Wait, did he ask you first?
1: Uh, Or did he just do it? He just kind of like. I'm going to do it. He's like, Amps has a question for you. It wasn't even like a full, like he did the ask. He just like. He said you. Teed it up. Asking for a friend, really my wife, your (laughs) daughter. (laughs) It's like, thanks. And fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm like, okay, you know what? I'll do anything for the podcast. Like, I'm going to make this work. You're so good. I'm so good, right? And there's – in California, there's all these different services where they – it's like the Uber Eats of – Uber Lube? Oh, no, that's not – No, Uber Lube is another thing. Uber Lube is a thing. It is a thing. (laughs) But this is like somebody will come to your house and deliver – Pot products, right? right? Cannabis products to your house, and I thought, okay, I'll I'll fill out the form, I'll put in my driver's license, and I'll just have it delivered to my parents' house, and then they can bring it up um, when when I see them. And your your dad was like, no problem. He's like, yeah, that's fine, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. he's very didn't even didn't even face him at all. I don't don't even think at the time I specified what the product was, but I said it's a cannabis-based product. You cool with that? And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And <laughs> and I thought, this is so easy. I can go online. I can fill out all the information. And they'll just deliver it to the house. And so I set – he's an early morning riser. And he was traveling up to Lake Tahoe that day. So I set the delivery like super early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that morning that the person who takes possession – their driver's license has to be in the in the uh, app oh, before no. they will accept the delivery, and it's also COD, right? Like it cash on delivery. Hey, he has to pay for it. <laughs> Can I have a copy of your driver's license? <laughs> so, <And laughs> you're gonna have to pay for this. <laughs> exactly, it's quite the ask, right? Yeah, it's so, getting it's getting bigger and bigger. Right. So I'm sitting at breakfast with kids and with Mister Ams, and I'm like fucking fuck balls. I have to figure out how to to set it. Like the guy's on his way to my parents' house and I'm shooting a text to my dad. Hey, I need a copy of your driver's license front and back. And he sends it to me. And then I'm like, what no the f- questions asked? I'm like, what the fuck, dad? Why are you just sending someone <laughs> your driver's license? you asked, not someone. You're his daughter. I know, but I could have been anybody. Like, it was a text, right? It wasn't like, I got on the phone. I'm texting him at brunch, and he just does it. What else can we send to your dad's house? I don't know. Apparently anything, and he oh, will just pay I guess for so.
0: It.
1: <laughs> but we had, um, the app wouldn't let me take photos. So he sent me the the pictures of his driver's license, but I couldn't just upload the pictures. And I'm, again, at like breakfast with the kids. at Trying to figure out how to do this. And finally, I took Mr. Ann's phone and I put the picture of the driver's license in his phone. And then I took a picture of his phone with the driver's license to upload it. And that sort of worked. But at the end of the day, my 21-year-old niece... (laughs) Was like, it's cool. I'll take possession. And she just like gave him her driver's license and paid for it. And like special delivery brought up three of these glass vials of of THC infused lube. Now, did she take one as payment? She did not. Oh. No, she did not. But I, you know, I've hooked that girl up oh, of course with lots of other right. uh, things. So she, she kind of she rescued to the whole you. situation. That's good. But I'm just imagining my like seventy four year old dad like you know, counting out the twenties oh to pay for three vials of for THC his infused THC lube. THC lube. His <laughs> t- oh my god. But I got it. Like you got it. at the end of the day, my niece and her boyfriend like knock on our hotel room door, like special delivery. <laughs> now, did she know what it was, or was it in a closed package? Or... It was in a package, but I told you her. You told her. Of course I didn't did not care. I yeah. told her. Yeah, she's probably
2: a little envious. Does I
1: she don't know. Twenty two years about it? old. Like, yeah. I, I guess I, they don't care. I, I don't think they care. Like, I, I, I don't think I used lube in my twenties. I thought yeah, I, I probably should have. It would have. I'm sure it would have made the sex better, but especially if it's THC, THC infused. infused I mean, if it
2: gets your pussy so high, high. right? Did you, how did you like it?
1: Well, that, yeah, that's like the $10,000 question. The first time I used it, I was pretty underwhelmed mm-hmm. by it. Mm-hmm. it. So first of all, it causes no sort of like psychedelic, psych, psychotropic effect on the body, right? Because it's it's used topically. Right. But we had heard from Ashley Manta the value of topicals. And, you know, especially if you suffer from vaginismus, which is when like all the mm-hmm. muscles in your vajayjay just clench up when you think about sex. Um, or if you have experienced sexual trauma and you're kind of recovering from that. That, that THC-infused topicals can be a really useful tool. That's not my issue so much, um, but I do like a good sort of like lubricant. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word. Like emollient is the word that's coming into my mind, but like mm-hmm. a, it's like a, a really um, lube. s- silky, luby lube. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, you know, it's more like a water-based lube mm-hmm. where it kind of rubs off pretty quickly. But if you, I have... Like, expect, because I have three bottles of the thing now. I think if you use it 20, 30 minutes before you're actually going to play. Right. I think she said you have to marinate. You have to marinate in it a little bit. So I wouldn't use it as lube. I didn't find it very effective as lube. But before a play date or before I know I'm going to have sex, even hours before, mm-hmm. sometimes I'll use it. And I do think that it it heightens sensitivity a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it's not like a miracle worker. It's not, you know, it's not like. Do you think with
2: prolonged use, though, if you used it all the time, it might start to
1: really. I I have found that the more I use it, the more I like it. And the more, the longer it kind of, I would say an hour is like ideal Mm -hmm. to kind of put it on before Mm -hmm. actually uh, using, like before actually having sex. So, you know, I've gotten better at using it, but it's not like the miracle product that Mm. I had kind of. Hoped for, but it's fun. I, you know, cool. I, I still have it. I still use it. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> That's not weird. No, That's not weird no, at all. Not at all.
2: Not
1: at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good one. I like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just normalizing really bizarre sexual behavior. is my job. It's your job. <laughs> okay, let's take a little break, and when we come back, we will talk about "comes you are."
2: And we're back. So come as you are.
1: Kat, do you remember reading the book for the first time?
2: Well, actually, um, sort of pre lifestyle, mm-hmm. I, uh, Mr. Kat actually yeah. picked up uh, She Comes First, which is
1: also an excellent book.
2: Yeah. And so I read that book first, mm-hmm. which got me very interested in, you know, looking up more books and finding more resources, right? Yeah. And in She Comes First, they talk about a lot about the anatomy and and sexual response and how it's not, you know, your clitoris just isn't that one little part right yeah. there, right? And so I found that fascinating. I loved that Mr. Cat got super into that. So, you know, I would search different books. And so I searched out, uh, you know, just sex books. Yeah. You know, you just put sex in the Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the search bar, and uh, this one came up, and so I I got it, and I, I started to read it. I – you know, it's a big book. It is. <laughs> it, it's meaty. And so for me, I ended up getting the audio version, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which was much easier for me to digest quickly. Yeah. Because I, I find the information so – interesting, especially because I feel like it rings true. Like she puts words
1: to the feelings that you've had yeah. for a long, long time. She also has really beautiful metaphors mm-hmm. that I think make some of these kind of difficult to understand concepts a little bit easier to digest. Yeah.
2: She really illustrates them so you can sort of grasp the concept very easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: hmm And, you know, I, I thought, uh, she Comes First is an excellent book, but it is very focused on the mechanics right. of sexual response right. and where Emily's book- More the emotional side. It's so much about what is going on in your head, mm-hmm. not just what's going on between your legs. Right. And I think that was such like a like surprise and an inevitability. Like, of course, you're not going to get a woman interested in sex if her brain isn't engaged exactly in that
2: process. i i kept thinking like these are all the things that we have felt for so long we just didn't know that they could be quantified they could be you know talked about in such a i just don't think we knew how universal it was right yeah. like oh of course i don't feel like having sex the kids are going crazy i'm exhausted mm-hmm. we just felt like maybe that was just us
1: Right. You feel really isolated because you can't talk with anybody about
2: your sex life. But to see and hear her talk about it and put it into words and realize that we are all feeling that, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's pretty amazing. And it's normal. Yes. (laughs) That was the best part
1: of all, right? Is to find
2: out that all of these things that we're experiencing are normal.
1: Right. One of the biggest takeaways from the book is Mm -hmm. everybody's different. Everybody's normal. Everybody's normal. What an amazing way to feel a connection sure. with other women in particular. Mm-hmm. Just that, that, yes, women and men, because she goes quite a lot when she talks about anatomy. Mm-hmm. She goes quite a lot into the idea of like, um, uh, genital analogs, right? That, that the parts of. We all have the same parts, just arranged in different ways. Right. Right which I thought was fascinating. It helped me understand my own anatomy, but also my partner's anatomy Mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. And like, so I think I read the book about two years ago for the first time. And I've been thinking about sex, like my entire adult and teenage life from a very scientific perspective. Right. And I did not realize, like, really understand the shape of the clitoris until I read her book. I had heard from other places and stuff, you know, that it's much bigger Mm -hmm. than the little man in the boat. Right. But she did such a good job of really explaining it in a way that that I could understand and kind of tap into it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's one thing to know, oh, there's a bunch of stuff inside you, too, It's another to know like, and you can access that through certain types of touch, through certain types of stimulation. Or when you stimulate yourself in a certain way, the reason it feels so good is like hiding way in there is your clitoris. That's right. It's got tentacles. (laughs) That's right. that, That come all the way down and around.
2: So I've always had a pretty good understanding of the anatomy. Before this book came out, I knew, I knew all the parts and I knew where they all were and I knew, you know, how the clitoris extends down and all of that. For me, this book really was important because of the psychological, the context, all the things that she talks about, you know, the responses,
1: the sexual response. Yeah. Well, so, so there's a lot there. So let's talk a little bit about the dual control mechanism because that, is also just a mind-blowing understanding of why sometimes the idea of sex seems really fun and exciting, and other times, seemingly the same situation, sex can be like, get the fuck away from me. And this is the part that I
2: was talking about when I said, like, we all have experienced this, Mm -hmm. but we didn't know that we've all experienced it. You know, we didn't know that it could be a whole mechanism name, you know, brakes and accelerators and all of that. that. That was really a big deal.
1: Yeah. Emily does a great job in the interview talking about the dual control mechanism, but essentially it's the idea that in your brain, there are brakes and accelerators. I'm being super reductive here, but there are things that make you think about sex That kind of cue you into, ooh, it's sexy time. Like this is a sexually relevant situation.
2: Right. And And those are the
1: accelerators. Those are your accelerators. Exactly. And then there are things going on either in your head or externally that tell you this is not sexy time. Right. Right. Like if you're in your bedroom and a kid walks in, you immediately, that's a break. Right? right. Or an alarm goes off or you're afraid that you're going to get pregnant or all of these different things that could be going on in your head that are for really good and legitimate reasons saying you should not be having sex right now. You should be running from a tiger. Or right. Whatever. Or
2: you just don't want to have sex right, right
1: now. Right. So understanding what turns you on, what are your accelerators, what turns you off, the, the brakes really are the key to understanding how to embrace your sexuality. Yeah,
2: I thought that too. I thought, yeah, there are the accelerators, but the brakes are far more important.
1: But, At
2: least to me, I yeah. think that getting rid of the brakes yeah. is the number one thing to do. And because you... I can be easily aroused if mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about all these other things. right? It doesn't take a whole lot, you know, accelerators. And she talks about how you can have very sensitive accelerators.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: But even if you have a moderately you know, sensitive accelerator, you get rid of all those brakes mm-hmm. and it's going to be really much easier to turn that
1: on. Right. Well, and if you take that analogy a little bit further, people focus so much on the accelerators. Like how mm-hmm. do I physically touch somebody to get them aroused or, or can we watch porn or whatever? But if your foot is like on the floor, on the brakes, It doesn't matter matter. how much you are pushing on the accelerator. You're not going anywhere. So I think for women in particular, understanding those things in their life or in their head that keeps them from tapping into those accelerators, understanding those breaks is key to fulfilling your sexual interest. Yeah, I agree. Fascinating. If you learn nothing else from us, from Emily's book, that's the big takeaway. Absolutely. I found the idea
2: of spontaneous versus responsive desire mm-hmm. very interesting.
1: So tell us more. What is the difference between spontaneous and response?
2: So spontaneous desire is like, boom, I just, I'm aroused. I feel like having sex. It comes on quickly and it's like an automatic thing.
1: Doesn't require like physical touch. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Responsive desire is when, you know, maybe your partner touches your skin and you go, "Hmm, Mm I like that. Mm -hmm. And then your desire sort of kicks in.
1: I would say I'm more in that category. Yeah. You know, one of her big takeaways is people treat women's sexuality like Men's sexuality, but not Light. so good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just not quite as functional.
2: What I loved about this is because I think that I have wished or felt a little bad that I don't have more spontaneous desire. You know, Mr. Cat has spontaneous desire. Right, right. Or he's even expressed that he would love it if I would initiate more. hmm hmm And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I yeah. I, I just don't think of it. And right. that was my answer. Right. I just don't it's think just of it. It's just not in my head in that moment. But, you know, but... Once we're, you know, we're going for, it. I'm super happy. I'm excited right. to be there, but I right. don't, I don't think of it that I don't think of it. Yeah. So I, I kind of felt bad about that. But then reading this book, I'm like, oh, that's totally it's normal. normal.
1: It's totally normal. I am the exact same way. I've had the exact same conversation with Mr. Anne's. And honestly, I would love to just be like, oh, it's five o'clock. Let's tear each other's clothes off mm-hmm. and have amazing sex. But that's not how I'm hardwired. You know, another thing that I've learned is that just because you have responsive desire doesn't mean you have to wait on your partner to tap into that. There are things that I can do to switch gears and to start to get into the mood and take more control of that. And not, you know, there's a certain amount of like mourning the fact that your sexuality doesn't look the way that you think it's supposed to look. Mm -hmm. But once you get past that, just saying, okay, cool. I'm not going to, without any sort of stimulation, be in the mood for sex. Right. So maybe I have to put it on a calendar. Maybe I have to take a bath. Maybe I have to read like a dirty novel. Whatever it is, I just do those things. And then I'm really excited for sex. So understanding how you're hardwired, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. Um, just because you're not thinking about sex all the time is such an empowering message. Yeah. So, let's bring Emily into the conversation because she has so much, and she's going to explain all of this so much, much better, better than, than us.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, I think it's a good idea. All right. are so thrilled today to be talking to Emily Nagoski, author of Come As You Are, as well as many other books regarding women's sexuality. Emily, we are huge fangirls (laughs) of you. This is like the highlight of our podcast so far to be able to talk with you and I have had so many conversations in my head with you. (laughs) I'm really glad to actually get to ask some of these questions to you live. So thank you so much for being on our show.
0: My pleasure. I can't wait to have the conversation.
1: Let's jump in. One of the key messages to your book is we're all different, but we're all normal, which is such a liberating, life-changing message for many women. But a lot of women still think They're really broken and dysfunctional when it comes to sex. In fact, we've had female listeners and even other female sex podcasters describe themselves as having some form of ED or sexual dysfunction because it takes them a long time to orgasm or because they don't feel desire all the time. What would you say to them and how would you describe their situation?
0: There's only two things that I consider not normal when it comes to sex. The first, obviously, is consent. Mm-hmm. Without consent, it's not normal sex. It's not sex at all. It's an act of violence. Um, and consent can be as simple as everybody involved is glad to be there and free to leave with no consequences. If you've got that, you are, you're good. You're fine. Whatever else happens, you are fine. And the other thing that's required is no unwanted pain. If you're experiencing wanted pain, do you? Great. If you're experiencing unwanted pain, uh, that's, Probably an issue that a medical provider can help with. And I say that knowing how difficult it is sometimes to find a medical provider who takes your pain seriously, especially if you're in an, it's a girl kind of body or if you're a non-binary person, having someone listen to your pain and take it seriously and refer you to effective treatment can take multiple tries, but there are effective interventions for managing pain. So if you have unwanted pain, Talk to a medical provider. Otherwise, anything consensual is normal. And ironically, well, let's talk about insomnia for a second. Did you know that the single most common cause of insomnia is worrying about your sleep? Like you you wake (laughs) up in the middle of the night and you start, you look at the clock and you're like, Oh no, what if I can't fall asleep? Then you start the clock in your head of how many hours? The same goes with your sexual functioning. The more you worry about it, the more you're interfering with your sexual well-being. So if you can allow your sexuality to be what it is, you turn toward it with kindness and compassion, even if it's not what you were taught it is supposed to be, it's actually fine. When there's a difference between what's happening with your sexuality and what you were taught to expect with your sexuality, the thing you were taught is the thing that's wrong.
1: Right. That's such a good point. So on the flip side, we've seen more and more people, women especially, embrace their lack of sexual interest and even call themselves asexual, not as a function, but as an identity. I wonder, though, how many of these people truly have no desire for sex versus not having figured out what their own sexual interests are or like just not having tapped into their sexual potential? Have you encountered this situation in
0: your studies? Asexuality is not necessarily about an absence of sexual desire. It's an absence of sexual attraction. Hmm. So ace folks are enormously varied. They are not a monolith. I'm not describing what asexuality is or what you can expect when you meet an asexual person. Total lack of desire absolutely is a thing that can go with asexuality. Mm -hmm. But I would say if folks are thinking they might be asexual, a good question to start with is, have you ever been sexually attracted to anyone? Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say sexual attraction? Mm. If yes, then you may still be somewhere in the ace spectrum, gray sexual, demisexual, all those different varieties. And that's just the normal part of the human experience. And if you're like, no, I've definitely been like attracted to people, it's just sex itself is always so disappointing. And if your experience is not a problem with sex, did you lack sexual attraction, it's that the sex you have is dismal and disappointing. Mm. That is not asexuality. That's bad sex. (laughs) Nobody wants that. No. We
2: talk about desire a lot. What about sexual temperament
0: and desire? That's kind of the same thing, right? My favorite thing to talk about maybe of all time, the dual control model. Yay! Yay! Right? That's what we want to talk about. This is the mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response, and it's called the dual control model because there's two parts. There's the sexual accelerator, which is the part a lot of us are familiar with that notices all the sex-related information in the environment. Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or crucially, think, believe, or imagine that -hmm. your brain codes as sex-related. And it sends that turn-on signal that is sexual arousal and pleasure. And at the same time, in parallel, all the time, you have breaks, noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. And that sends the turn off signal. So arousal is a dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. And people vary both in what activates their accelerators and what hits their brakes. And they vary in the sensitivity of these mechanisms. And you have a questionnaire in your book that helps us figure all that out, right? Yeah. So (laughs) you take a little like Cosmo quiz survey thing that gives you a score. Most people are going to score in the middle, somewhere in the average range. Mm -hmm. For most people, literally 60 or 70% of people uh, it's not about the sensitivity of the mechanism itself. It's about, usually, it's about how much stuff you've got hitting the brakes, because yeah. all kinds of things can hit the brakes. A few people are going to discover that they really have extremely sensitive brakes. And those are folks who are most likely to struggle with delayed orgasm, total lack of desire, difficulty in accessing sexual pleasure. And a few people are going to score very high on the sexual accelerator which might sound like it's going to be fun. It's like driving a Porsche with a super sensitive accelerator. But those are the folks who might be at the greatest risk for using sex, the technical term is, as a maladaptive strategy for managing negative affect, Mm. where you're experiencing the pleasure of sex as a way to mask or run away from uncomfortable feelings that you really need to be dealing with. Sure.
1: Now, you mentioned in your book that CIS and CES, which are the, the brakes, right? CIS is the brakes, CES is, Cis the is the accelerators. Breaks. CIS inhibition, CES excitation. That's not something that people can change, right? That's pretty much how they're born with, how sensitive their brakes and their accelerators are.
0: Think of it as like introversion and extroversion. Yeah. Like it can vary depending on like your stress level or you can like adapt, but basically it's pretty stable across your lifespan. Okay.
2: Well, that's disappointing. <laughs>
0: How do we change that?
2: How can we work with that? How can we make our situation better if we're sort of where we're going to be in those sensitivities? Well, I'm
0: sad you're disappointed about <gasps> that because there's a difference between the mechanism itself, which is more or less stable, and all of the stuff that's activating your accelerator and your brakes. Like if you have a sensitive brake and you're like, well, I guess this means I will never have uh, the kind of sex life I have always imagined for myself. One. You may never have the kind of sex life you imagine for yourself, but if you decide that you're just not going to assess your sexual well-being in terms of somebody else's opinion about what your sexuality is supposed to be and embrace your sexuality as it is right now with confidence and joy... Like, screw everybody else's opinion. This is the sexuality I have. It's spectacular because it's the sexuality I have. And let's do what we can to like explore pleasure in a way that works for me. And you often do have control over the stuff that's hitting your brakes, like your stress level. You can work on body image. You can heal a trauma in your past. You can resolve relationship conflict. Your kids will eventually not be toddlers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I right. think that's the biggest thing. Or Chil- at least children.
2: it, it yeah. was for me.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And I think for for both of us,
1: we've experienced a tremendous increase in our sexual pleasure and in the sexual experiences that we have. So something's changing, right? right. It's changing the context or it's identifying what those breaks are and making sure mm-hmm. that they're not a part of of that night, of that experience. So we're born the way we're born. Our sexual identity is what it is. But working within those Parameters is stuff, there's definitely room for growth. Well,
2: as we try to make some changes to have a better sex life, what is the difference between liking, wanting, and learning? I know you call this the one ring (laughs) mechanism. What is that?
0: This is, I was about to say this is my favorite thing to talk about, but I just said that about the dual control model, (laughs) didn't I?
2: It's all our favorite things. This is so important.
0: I love this so much. Okay, so in your brain, neurologically. Pleasure and desire are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. In your brain, you have a thing called the liking system, which is these sort of small opioid hotspots for noticing that something pleasurable is happening. You put sugar on the tongue of a newborn human or a newborn rat, and they make the same, they go, because it's delicious. And those little opioid hotspots are setting off fireworks in their brain because of this innate pleasure. That's liking. Desire, or the wanting system, is not tiny little hotspots scattered over your midbrain. It is this vast network of dopamine neurons that goes through every part of your brain from your like deep emotional brain up into prefrontal cortex where we make decisions and decide not to say the rude thing that we want to say the dopamine system wanting is everywhere mm. and it's a totally different process and experience yes the two are related to each other like if you taste something that you really like that could easily activate some wanting right mm-hmm The same goes for sex. If you experience some pleasure, that could result in you experiencing a wanting of more of some of that pleasure, please. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. And what about the learning part? Yes. So this is whether or not something activates the accelerator. Is it sex related? Just because something activates the accelerator and is sex related doesn't mean that you like or want the thing that's activating the accelerator and we live in a sufficiently screwed up society that sometimes the things that activate our accelerator, like suppose you, you're like looking for some kind of porn that you really like and you stumble on something that you really don't like. Your body may respond anyway because it is a sexually explicit stimulus, right? Sure. That makes sense. And this is a thing that Is so important in communication because there's this phenomenon. Insert my whole Ted talk here on unwanted arousal, arousal non-concordance, where what your genitals are doing may or may not match what you're subjectively experiencing. And long story short, if there is a difference between what your genitals are doing, blood flow or not, and how you feel, which one is the true indicator of your arousal? What's going on in your head? Yeah. How you subjectively feel. You know so much more than your genitals do. Your blood flow only has like this much information and your brain has all the other information about like what your context is right now, what your relationship with this partner might be. So if you're with someone and their genitals are responding and they're like, this isn't doing it for me. Listen it's, to them. It's like you tell your toddler, you have to listen to their words.
2: <laughs> Use right. your words,
0: listen to your words.
2: Oh, maybe she has been listening to our, <laughs> our podcast. That's what we say all the time. Use your words. Use your motherfucking words.
1: <laughs> okay. So I, one of the things I found really interesting about your book, especially in the dual control mechanism, is that a lot of this comes from studies from the, the 50s, 60s, and, and late 90s when it comes to the dual control mechanism why is it that we're just learning about it now? Why isn't some of this sort of basic understanding of of women's sexuality in particular, not
0: part of the everyday dialogue around sex? Yeah. Like arousal non-concordance has been showing up routinely in the research since the mid seventies. Right. Wow. Wow. I get so mad when I think about that. Yeah. And the answer to why don't people already know why isn't everybody being, why isn't this in textbooks is of course uh puritanical sexual shame and the patriarchy. The goddamn patriarchy. <laughs> God <damn. laughs>
2: patriarchy. Are we ever going to get so, away from that? Uh,
1: well, you know, what's <laughs> interesting. I, I don't know, Emily, if you are familiar with the sort of lifestyle community and the open marriage community, but I do think there is a lot more female control within mm-hmm. that community because women have less rules associated with them. Women kind of have to initiate because most of the men are gentlemen, right? They're not going to step in and, and you know, like insert themselves in a situation if they're not actively being invited. So I think there's, there's room, there's a place where this is growing. It's a pretty small subculture, but uh, you know, there's a little
0: less patriarchy going on. <laughs> I mean, among every population that varies from the mainstream cultural script, the sort of like monocultural idea of what sex is supposed to be, if people vary from that, they're, they've already been through the process of being challenged by like, wait, what's right for me is not what I have been taught my whole life is right. And so you have to start figuring out what is right. You have to make up your own Rules. Mm-hmm. So the kink community, the mm-hmm. poly and swing communities, the queer communities of all kinds, uh, disabled folks, fat folks, people of color, especially Black people in America, all are written out of the script of mainstream sexual functioning. Yeah, and they all have already begun the work of dismantling. The monocultural script in their own minds and in their relationships, yeah, and i it's it's what gives me hope,
1: yeah, I would add in there that the sort of um generation Z seems to be less uh constrained by puritanical sexual uh script, like they seem to be a lot more tolerant of other people's sexual points of view mm-hmm. and um uh, not. As scared to identify themselves um, as non-mainstream sexual. So there's hope. I think so. Hopeful. Here's my
0: here's my worry about Gen Z. Okay. I agree that on the identity piece, they, because of the internet, they have been exposed to a wider range of identities and experiences. And it feels intuitively right for them that you just accept somebody else's description of their own experience, right? Sure. Here's the part I don't know that they're getting. That they live in bodies that respond to the world. And just because you accept other people's identities doesn't mean you know how to live in your body. Mm -hmm. Do you know what activates? Could you write a list of things you know activate your accelerator and things you know hit your brakes and strategies that you use to get rid of the stuff that's hitting your brakes? Mm. Do you even know how to manage like physiological stress in your body? Or do you think you only get to feel well and happy and full of pleasure when the world is finally a just place? Because none of us will be alive when the world is finally a just place. Right, But we push the world in that direction when we grant our bodies access to rest, to pleasure, to joy. Deprogramming from that shit is a lifelong process. And I worry that in the Gen Z acceptance, we were like feeling... So great about like, yay, identity is like welcome and diversity. Yay. And there's so much more to it to yeah. like dig yourself out from under the grave you were buried alive in and literally in terms of your feeling of aliveness. Awakeness of being in contact with the sensations of your own body, and in the sensation of being engaged deeply with another person. It makes me wonder,
1: like you just need a certain level of maturity maturity. before you're ready to really accept, you know, your body as it is, and 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 access that pleasure. I don't know. Maybe that's something they just need.
0: I think it could be a younger age if we didn't spend the first twenty years of our lives being told there's one specific thing, like being told and. Punished when we don't do it, that there's one specific thing we're supposed to be. If we didn't have to undo all the damage that was done to us, if we didn't have to unlearn all the lies that were told to us, Mm -hmm. did you guys also learn that uh, genital responses definitely means pleasure and desire? Yep. Oh, sure. I learned. Yeah. I started reading romance novels when I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so, as far as I knew, like if your genitals are wet, it means you like it and want it. It's in 50 shades of fucking gray, which I'm not going to like there's there's some great things about 50 shades of gray and it also reinforces this myth when Christian gray our hero spanks Anastasia, she consent this is a great example. She consents to it. She does not want, want it. it. Mm-hmm. she does, does not, not like, like it, it. Mm-hmm. and when christian gray puts his fingers in her vagina at the end of that spanking he says feel this anastasia <laughs> how much your body <laughs> likes this yeah <Yuck>. oh <laughs> no, her, gen- her uh, is having your butt touched by your romantic and sexual partner a sex-related stimulus sure yes. how we unravel
2: all of this
1: well, and, and can that that sexual relevance, can that be sort of learned or fine tuned as an adult or is it just baggage that we carry along with us as we go on with our sexual experiences? What
0: do you mean by sexual relevance? Well,
1: so, it, you know, if your body is responding to something sexually or it's not responding to something and you're like, why don't I find this sexually relevant? Is that something that you can sort of
0: um it's not that you don't it's that your genitals don't right now yes fair enough yes and non-concordance is not a problem it is not a problem to fix so you yeah don't worry about it if there when there is a mismatch don't worry about it just um something there to help us exactly lube (laughs) so my dad yeah lube oh my gosh (laughs) there are so many great kinds of lube available like in the last 10 years so many lubes yeah So I told you my definition of normal sex. Basically, everyone's glad to be there and free to leave with no unwanted consequences. Perfect sex is that plus turning toward whatever is happening in the here and now with curiosity and kindness. So if somebody involved in this situation has a penis and would like to be uh, experiencing an erection and an erection isn't happening, you turn toward that experience with curiosity and kindness. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's an opportunity to play with a soft penis, which is a totally different experience. There are so many cool things you can do with a non-erect penis that you can't do with an erection. That's fair. I never thought about that. That's perfect. You are doing perfect when that happens. If you can like what's happening right now and not, you're like, darn it, I wish this erection were happening. One of my favorite blowjob stories, in fact, involves a partner giving a blowjob and it's taking a really long time, this blowjob, because the partner doing the blowing stops regularly, like pauses, takes a break. And in those breaks, the penis loses its erection. And the partner, like, then continues, goes back and the erection comes back and then pauses and the erection goes away. And in this, in this, experience. The partner receiving the blowjob apologizes for losing their erections. And the partner doing the blowing says, no, no, I'm doing this on purpose. (laughs) It's edgy. And and, and the partner receiving after that couldn't get soft again. (laughs) Because it's such a turn on. Being with a partner who is
1: accepting exactly what is happening in your body and enthusiastic, regardless of what happens in your body is
0: amazing. It's amazing to yeah. get that. It's amazing to receive that. And I don't want, want to like minimize the frustration people can experience when they want to be experiencing one thing and they're experiencing something else. If you want to have an orgasm and it's been an hour and an or like you've gotten so close and it just hasn't happened. It's that frustration makes sense to me. And is that frustration activating your accelerator or is that your frustration break. and maybe self-criticism? Is it hitting the brakes, right? Like the more you feel frustrated, the more difficult it's going to be to get to orgasm anyway. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely.
2: You know, we, we have so much stress in our lives, you know, trying to get in the mood, trying to have an orgasm, putting all this pressure on us. All of the stress seems to sort of be in the way of... Hit the brakes. Yeah, it it hits the brakes. How do we get rid of that stress? How do we complete the stress cycle? You talk about completing the stress cycle. What does that mean? How do you do that?
0: The main thing you need to recognize before you do any of this stuff is that there is a difference between dealing with the stressor, the thing that is causing your stress, like, Traffic and work and relationships and kids and the environment and the pandemic and looming fascism, small things, right? These are things that activate stress in our body. There's deal solving those problems is one thing. Dealing with the stress activated in your body by those things is something else. So if you take the like environment where we evolved and where our stress response system Really makes pretty good sense. Savannah of Africa, if you're running away from a lion, your stress response is activated because a threat is chasing you 30 miles an hour with teeth and claws. Oh my. Yes. Um, but and you run and you manage to run back to your village and somebody sees you coming and they wave you into their door and you stand with your shoulders against the door and the lion charges and roars and eventually he gives up and it wanders away. Now you have just run and thought and pushed and been supported by someone else. And as you see the lion's tail disappear over the horizon and you know now that you're safe, how do you feel? (laughs) Relieved. Oh yeah, relieved. You're glad to be alive. You love your friends and family. The sun seems to shine brighter. That's the complete stress response cycle. We are alas, almost never chased by lions now. And so the process of dealing with our stressors is not the same as the process of dealing with our stress. Like if you're stressed out from traffic you're and you're having all the same physiological problems in your stress, your uh, heart rate increases, your blood pressure increases, your digestion slows down, your immune system slows down, your reproductive system is suppressed. And your shoulders and muscles are getting tenser and tenser. Your, your shoulders trying to be your earrings. And you're so frustrated you just want people to get out of the way because you're just trying to get home. Right? <laughs> and then you get home. And when you get home, do you suddenly feel grateful to be alive and you love your friends and family and it's such a relief in the sun shines brighter? Or do you still feel like you want to punch somebody in the face? it would be the latter. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you dealt with the stress or you managed to get home, but you didn't deal with the stress itself. To deal with the stress itself, you have to complete the stress response cycle that got activated. Um, there are lots of ways to do this. Chapter one of the book I wrote with my sister, Burnout, has at least eight, I think 12, evidence-based, concrete, specific strategies for completing the stress response cycle. But The most efficient one. I mean, when you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? Run. (laughs) You run. When you are feeling that like physical tension in your body from a terrible traffic situation, what do you do? Well, you're sitting, you're sitting sitting there and stewing. You finally make it home. You're standing there right outside your door. You run. You go for a walk. You do jumping jacks on your, on your front step. You just like tense up every muscle, every muscle, muscles you didn't know you had for a hard, 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 slow count of 10. You keep your muscles tensed. You're imagining beating the crap out of whoever caused that traffic situation a little bit longer, a little bit longer. And then you flop. Yeah. Just that little bit of physical activity is a cue to your brain that you have escaped the threat. Just that little bit, it siphons off the worst of the stress. So physical activity is one thing. And you will, different people have different sort of access to their body's sensations. Um, so for some people, natural exercisers listening to this are thinking, oh, so that's why at the end of my run, at the end of my ride, after my workout class, I just feel so much better. It's not just that it's like endorphins and stuff. The reason I get the endorphins and stuff is because I have completed the stress response cycle, Love creative self expression, connection with others, rest, rest and more rest completes a stress response cycle. I make a big deal of sleep. If, if for it being a sex book, I talk about sleep kind of a lot. <laughs> as as you are. Um, and in burnout, there's a whole chapter devoted to rest. It's that important, truly.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, spontaneous and responsive desire. What are, Ooh, yes. what are the differences? And is one better than the other?
0: Responsive desire is better. I'm not yeah. supposed to say that, I know. but it's true. <laughs> but I'm it's true. supposed to say they are both equally good there, but, and they are both normal. But responsive desire is better. And I'll I'll talk about why. Okay. So spontaneous desire is sort of the mainstream narrative we're used to hearing where you're just like eating your lunch and you have a stray, sexy thought or you're trucking down the street and you see a stray, sexy person and your brain goes, "Ooh, I would like to have some, sense. just spontaneous, out of the blue, seemingly out of, with no stimulation. You're just like, I would like to have some sexy times. And kabo- Erica Moen, who is the illustrator who drew the genitals in Come As You Are, draws spontaneous desire as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Kaboom! You just yeah. want it. And so you take your kaboom to your certain special someone and you're like, hey, kaboom! <laughs> <laughs> but there's also, it's called spontaneous desire. Uh, and then there's responsive desire. Where spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure, responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. Remember how I was talking about like you put sugar water on your tongue and it makes you kind of want more? You experience the pleasure first and then the response, the desire emerges in response to that. Uh, So how this usually looks in like, suppose you're in a long-term relationship where if you didn't schedule sex, it would never happen because we are busy. So you schedule it, you get childcare and you clean the house and you put the last of the kids' toys Throw them in their room, you tromp up to the bedroom and you lie down in the bed and you're like, all right, let's do this. And your partner gets in the bed with you, and you're you've like turned toward each other, and you're like, Hello, I like you. You're fun and nice, and I'm glad I'm here. And you let your skin touch your partner's skin, and your body goes, Oh, right, I like this. I like this person. What a good idea this is. That's responsive desire. Spontaneous desire is fine. If you enjoy spontaneous desire, great. And it is not the kind of desire to aim for. Aim for responsive desire. Because uh, Peggy Klein plots in her research of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives, very few of them talked about spontaneous desire as being a feature of their extraordinary sex lives. They talked about responsive desire, about deliberately planning and creating for themselves a context that allows them to have the kind of sex that they really like.
2: Mm. So I think about the differences, right? You have one that's one partner that's more spontaneous and one that's more responsive. And the one who is spontaneous wishes that the one who is responsive would be more spontaneous. Like
1: initiate more. You know?
0: how, do you, yep. how do you work that out? Who's right? So Uh, The technical term in the research is desire differential. It is the single most common reason a couple seeks sex therapy. And it's literally universal. If your relationship lasts long enough, there will be a time when one person's interest in sex is higher than the other person's interest in sex. And among the couples who seek sex therapy because of a desire differential, when it's a heterosexual couple, it's just as likely to be the woman who has the higher interest as the man, just as likely. But the narrative is that men are spontaneous and women are responsive. And the assumption that the spontaneous desire partner is the one who is right, who has the correct appropriate amount of desire, and the more responsive partner is the one who is broken and doing it wrong and needs to be fixed. And that is not even a little bit true. There is no right amount of wanting sex. And if you have responsive desire... You have desire. You have enough desire. You just have a different style. The way your initiation happens is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And that's not worse. I know we have it in our minds that like spontaneous out of the blue sex, that planning is somehow not sexy. I I try to understand why people think that planning and putting it in your calendar isn't sexy. Like I think it's sexy sexy. (laughs) when I have something to look forward to. Right. It gives you something to look forward to. Like I, we're busy, right? Mm -hmm. But you have cordoned off a time in your calendar. Time is our number one most valuable resource. Mm -hmm. As people with multiple partners, you know how important time and calendar management is. So for somebody to cordon off time in their calendar, just As time for you to put your mouths on each other's bodies. Mm -hmm. Like that is the most romantic gift I can imagine. Like how sexy is that? You see it in your calendar and you're like, man, this person.
1: Loves me. Or sexual connection
0: really matters. Our erotic connection matters enough to this person that they have cordoned off space and time when they could be doing so many other things. Kids to take care of, other people to spend time with, work to do, sleep, right? Right. Why? It's how you decide to see it. Yeah. I, I want to dig
1: a little bit more into this differential desire, because as you say, any couple who's together for a long time is going to experience at least periods of time where one partner really desires more intimacy than the other. And I think in the, the lifestyle and swing community, it's further complicated by the fact that you might have multiple partners, that that the sex that's available to you is really varied. So is there a recommendation that you would have for partners who are trying to work through this differential desire?
0: Yes. Neither partner is doing it wrong. Neither partner is doing it right. Mm. You are both just there. Lower desire partner, I want to know, do you want the sex? Like, when you have the sex, so I, um, what my new book is about is actually about sex in a long-term relationship, regardless of the structure of that relationship, regardless of the genders of the people involved. And I was inspired because in the process of writing my book about the science of women's sexual well-being, I mean, thinking and reading and writing about sex all day, every day. I was so stressed out. I had zero interest in having any actual sex I get for that. months, <laughs> months at a time. And my partner was so patient and kind and we would set up dates and I would try to follow my advice. And sometimes it turned into sex. And a lot of times I would just cry and fall asleep, right? We were not in the situation where the sex that I didn't want was not worth wanting. It was great. And I still like, I couldn't get there. So the question is, what are the barriers? What are the things that are hitting my brakes? Oh, I'm writing a book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is it reasonable for me to ask my partner to wait until the book is done yeah i can do that is it reasonable for me to wait until in someone else's case the kid is two (gasps) we can do all kinds of other things but like your genitals are not coming near my genitals until i am on a more stable (laughs) sleep schedule
2: yeah
0: that's a reasonable thing to ask of a partner That they wait until you are ready to want it. And then I think about it as not trying to get to a sexy place in your mind. Try to get to the room next door to the sexy place. (laughs) Like when you think back. Yes, the antechamber of lust. (laughs) If you think about past situations, context where it has been easy for you to get to a place of desire of enjoying sex what was going on in those contexts what was your relationship with your body like what was your relationship with a partner like what was the external circumstance like did you have fewer worries about money at that time um, i had uh, one woman tell me the story of going on vacation To the town where she and her husband and her kids had gone to the same house, rented the same house for their vacation every single year um, and had great vacation sex. Mm. And then one year they couldn't get the same house. No problem. They rented a different house in the exact same town. Nothing. Really, really nothing. And when they got home, instead of like worrying about it and fretting and judging, they talked to each other really thoughtfully and curiously. Like, what is it that was different this time? From that other house. And what they realized is that the house, it was in the Mediterranean and it was so old that the bed was built into the wall, which <laughs> meant it did not squeak. There huh. was no noise, no distraction, no worry about the kids interrupting. Such a small thing made such a huge difference in whether or not sex even happened. Never mind whether or not it was high quality. Mm -hmm. So if you can turn with that curiosity of like, what's going on when it's easy, that's different when it's not, Mm -hmm. and collaborate with partners to create a context that makes it easier.
2: Well, that brings me to a spectacularly good context, giving you a spectacular orgasm. How do you set that up? And you talk about the flock. What is the flock? (laughs)
0: What the fuck is the plot? What the
2: fuck
1: is the (laughs) plot?
0: Okay. So the you that is you, that's aware of being you, is actually a hologram. You Mm -hmm. are all these different brain areas. You are... Uh, your vision. You are your smell. You are your cognition. You are your memories. You are your fears. You are your hopes and dreams. You are all those things. Your brain is made of lots of different parts. And how much of those parts working together versus how much of those parts are in conflict with each other? Can you mm. imagine that? Mm -hmm. I use the flock metaphor because the way a flock of birds works, or indeed a flock of sheep or any species that flocks or schools or works in big groups, how it works is not that there's one individual in charge saying, hey, everybody, let's go south for the winter. It's that each individual has the rules in their brain of I want to fly broadly south. I want to stay about this distance from my neighbor. And I want to avoid predators. So when everybody's following those rules simultaneously, the flock just emerges. It just spontaneously happens with no one having to be in charge. It turns out our brains work the same way. There's no individual part that's in charge of your orgasm. Orgasm happens all over your brain, but you want all the parts of your brain, all the accelerator parts of your brain and all the brakes parts of your brain collaborating in a shared mission for one experience, which is increasing the amount of pleasure that you can experience all at one time, which builds up gradually over time. You increase your capacity for pleasure with practice and it happens best. So the squeaky bed is one example of like your brain just hears that and it's one little thing that holds that part of your brain back, that bird in the flock. So if you have an orgasm, it's going to be that little bit less powerful, right? Another example it, from the research, there's a, a Dutch researcher who does brain research as people to masturbate to orgasm in an fMRI machine. I don't know if you've ever had an MRI. It is not the sexiest context in the world, right? Nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's loud. noisy and you're cold, right? Yeah. Even among the people who are willing to volunteer for this study, he found only half have an orgasm, but he found that if he let people put on socks... It increased by another 50 percent. How many people were able to get there? Why did they have a foot fetish? Was it a blood flow thing? No, their feet were cold. (laughs) They were distracted. (laughs) You put on socks. It's one like it's one less thing pulling a part of the flock away. Every part of your brain is collaborating and is on board and can make an orgasm happen. Even when you're wearing a hospital Johnny and there's, you're in like a tube and it's going dong, 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 dong around your head. Like even then, like a little change can make that much of a difference. That's, that's the flock. You, like is every part of the flock participating on this shared goal?
1: I loved that metaphor the first time <laughs> I read the book and it's, it, it, Gives people permission, I think, in the middle of a sexual experience to go, hold on one second. I just need to grab a little bit of lube because this is bothering me. And then, yeah. you, then that little that one little bird is flying in the right direction, right? So, yeah, that need little to part turn of you
0: that was like, I'm worried about the irritation. You, mm-hmm. you, you, just, you just right. get the lube. There's a story from a Romance Writers Association conference, uh, heard in the elevator. Man, these these romance characters. They, they're like literally running away from the bad guy, being shot at, hiding in a closet and they have sex in the closet. Mm. I can't even have sex if there's a dish in the sink. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. And there is an inclination on the part of people who do my kind of job to be like, learn to mindfully like not cling, like detached from the thought of the dish. But also what if you just did the dish? Yeah. Yeah. Cause <laughs> all you can think about
2: is that damn dish, right? Yeah. I mean, so if, just you're, do like it. That if you're trying not to think about it, you're definitely
0: going to make be it, worse. Thinking about yeah. it Yeah. Yeah. The more you try not to, the more you're going to don't <laughs> think about a white bear. Yeah. <laughs> the more you try not to think about something, the more you're going to think of The more you try not to think about that dish. And you know what? Suppose you're like, I am so sorry, my dear, <laughs> and I, like, I cannot get that dish out of my head. What if they say, oh, oh, I can help you with that. I can yes. do that dish. That's right. And they like as an act of erotic service, they go and they do the dish yes. and they come back, I don't know, wearing nothing but elbow length rubber dish gloves. Wow. Damn. Like that sounds hot. Sometimes you do the dish. There is nothing more
2: erotic than watching a man, a man do. do the dishes or the laundry or
0: laundry. Actually, in in Peggy Kleinplatz's research on people who have extraordinary sex lives, laundry shows up a lot. Yes. and sheets are terrible to wash because they get all like tangled if you put them in the dryer. And I get
1: it. I could you got like
0: being very erotic to have I, someone else do the sheets. Right. When I was eighteen and at one of my very very first jobs. I was a wait staff at the DuPont Country Club. Ooh. Um, and one of the women that I worked with, I was a virgin still. I had never had anything even approaching sex. And she said that her way of initiating sex was to get the sort of hand towel and lay it on the bed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening, honey. <laughs> I like it. This is a towel that's going to yeah. absorb the fluids so yeah. that we don't have to wash all the sheets. We just wash this one towel. And I have integrated that into my sex life when we were struggling and looking for strategies to make it any little bit easier. One of the things we realized is that it's a barrier after sex to have to, like, get up out of bed, out in the cold, dripping fluids to go to the bathroom to get a towel. We put towels in a drawer reachable from the bed. Love right? it. Right? I love Sometimes it. Sometimes it's the little things. That's right. I love Put that. Put on socks. <laughs> I have a Put friend who, when, when I told her the sock story, she got knee-high wool socks because her partner loved the knee-high look. Oh, yeah. And she got to have warm feet.
1: Yeah. It and he got to have a sexy, sexy partner. That's right. Wow. I love it. Creative solutions.
0: That's yeah. great. And it's all because people shed the judgment of like, but we're supposed to do it this way, but it's, but that shouldn't bother me. I'm supposed to be able to do it this way. There is no should. Let us all stop shooting on ourselves. (laughs) There's only what's happening right now and loving what's happening right now.
2: So that kind of brings us to confidence and joy.
0: Oh, yes, indeed. What is
2: confidence and joy? And how do we, how do we, how do we get there? We get
0: there by practice, unfortunately. Sorry. Um, So confidence, these these are two magical ingredients. In addition to knowing what normal sex is and what perfect, perfect sex is, confidence is knowing what is true about your body, your sexuality, your relationship history, your relationship right now. Knowing what's true, even if it's not what you were taught should be true. Even if it's not what you wish were true, it is knowing what is true about you. And joy is the hard part because it is loving what's true. Even if it's not what you were taught should be true. Even if it's not what you wish were true about your sexuality. Folks uh, with, who are not born with disabilities, who acquire disabilities, have to go through a long process of learning to love what is true about their body and their life now. There's a lot of grieving that has to happen of letting go of who you used to be. I think parents need to do more of this. If you stay in a relationship with someone through the process of not having kids and then having kids, there is grieving we all need to do to let go of the people and the relationship that happened before the children. Mm. In order to create space for loving what's true about your partner, your relationship, your bodies, which have totally different meanings, Mm. loving what's true is difficult because it means letting go of other people's ideas about what your body and your sexuality and your relationship are supposed to be, which is, in a sense, acknowledging failure. Like, Mm. Because it's true. All of us are always failing to be the person we are told we are supposed to be. That is correct you are failing. The good news is that everybody's failing. And if you can be (laughs) like, actually, nobody was ever going to win that stupid, bogus, rigged game anyway. Mm. And you let go of that goal and instead welcome the sexuality that you actually have, the relationship you actually have, assuming that it's a relationship worth wanting. Sure. Sure.
1: Ugh, I love that so much. And it's, it's a ongoing journey. I think all of us are not yeah. perfect at accepting ourselves. So yeah, uh, I do this for a living and it's still, yeah. still a So, so first off, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I know that you are in the middle of writing your next book. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what's going on with you right now? So I'm I'm writing a book. book. (laughs) Are you having sex right now while you're writing the book? Have you learned to get past that desire challenge? I did
0: for a while, but then it got, you know, I got to the chapters about like problems and trauma and the really like dark, difficult stuff. And, and it, it just dropped away. And my partner knows that I want us to be engaged with each other through the process and that there are some chapters where that's just not going to happen. But as I get started on the next draft, I'm starting over the positive stuff and I have high hopes. Nice. <laughs> uh, so it's it's about sex in a long-term relationship. It begins with my story of an total absence of both desire and pleasure because I was so stressed out. And it's basically all the things that I needed to know then in 2014 that helped me and my partner find our way back to each other. Hmm.
1: That feels like something that resonates with a lot of
0: us who have
1: long-term partners and watch that relationship grow and change. Because it's normal for it
0: to come and go. The coming and going, pardon the pun, is not the the problem. It's the problem is if you can't find your way back. Yeah. I love that. I
1: cannot wait to read that book. And Emily, I also want to take a moment to just thank you for what you've done for vulva owners everywhere, helping them, you know, understand their sexuality better, tap into their sexual potential and the people who love them and want to bring them pleasure, giving them education and information um, to help with that, including the two of us. You have been really impactful on both of our lives. So thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you so much
0: writing a book is terrible, as I mentioned. <laughs> yeah. uh, and when I hear people say that, I'm like, oh, that's why. That's why I'm doing this difficult work is because it actually like has an impact on people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah. It's you. made a tremendous that's difference. Very energizing for me. I yeah. love that. We are so glad to be one of your wise. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's right. Yeah. Thank
2: you. And we're back.
1: She's awesome. Oh, my gosh. You know, you think about, like, who in the world, living or dead, you would like to have a drink with? And she would be... Oh, she'd be fun. She'd be on my top five list
0: for sure. She's just
1: got such a
2: passion. Yes. And she cares, she cares about this so much. And she's so enlightening. I mean, I yes. just
1: I felt like I just learned so much reading mm-hmm. that book. Mm-hmm. And to take... The topic of sexuality, which is very difficult to bring into the mainstream and just be very matter of fact about it, is amazing. It means that it's accessible to a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise seek it out. Mm -hmm. So again, if I haven't said it already a million times, (laughs) go get the fucking book. It is so good. Yeah. It is so, so good. So what are we going to do for our homework? Well, there is a come as you are workbook. That's right. Yeah. I've never bought that. I've never looked into it. The The book itself mm-hmm. has some exercises right. that I've done. But I think let's check out the workbook. I think that's a great idea. And see, you know, I've read the book now, I would say like three plus <laughs> yeah. times or read sections of the book at least three times. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I learn something every time I read it. Well, it's a lot of information. Yeah, that's right. You're not going to pick it all up the first time.
2: Right. Yeah. And you're going to pick up on different things every time. Because once you've got one concept, you're Mm -hmm. listening to it, or at least I'm listening to it again, going, oh, I got that. Right. And I might skip forward just to
1: hear the other parts that weren't quite as clear the first time. Yeah. 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 Like, I feel like I've never... When I first read the book, I was kind of tapping into, like, what is my sexuality outside Mm -hmm. of... Being partnered up with Mr. Amps, what the fuck does it mean? I've never taken the time to really explore my own desires, my the way I'm hardwired. But like this time through, I think more about the relationship and like how com- how do you communicate these things to your partner? And she goes a lot into mm-hmm. managing the the real, you know your sexuality in the context of relationships. Right.
2: I've given you all of this information. Yeah. Now I'm going to help you figure out what to do with
1: it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I think focusing on the sexy camera. I have no idea what's in the workbook. It's arriving tomorrow. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) And yeah, I'm just going to check out the different exercises and hopefully one or two like really resonate with me. Yeah. That sounds great. I think this is going to be a good exercise for us. Yeah. It's always good to kind of bring it back to the fundamentals sometimes. Well, and what I love too, is
2: I read the book. I mean, I listened to the book like three times, whatever, but Mr. Cat hasn't. And I've explained to him this concept or that concept, but he hasn't really had time to dive into it like I have. So if I do the workbook, I can sort of look at this and look at this. and, And that might be a good way to open up conversation there.
1: Totally. I'm excited. Me too. Let's do it.
2: So that's our show. Thanks for swinging by, and don't forget, you deserve great sex. Now go get some.
1: If you love the Two Hot Lives podcast, be sure to subscribe. And if you really love the show, rate us or give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks for listening. thinking about like what's the shape of the clitoris it it does have those long sort of tails like Mm -hmm. a swallow butterfly Mm -hmm. but it doesn't look like a butterfly no it doesn't look like a butterfly i think it almost it almost looks like a dementor (laughs) a dementor (laughs) from like harry potter like i don't know it's got like the head but then it's got these long sort of like tentacle things that kind (laughs) of hang down into your body i don't know it's fascinating it's beautiful and fascinating Mm
2: and